Good morning, and the conversation begins here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, and a beautiful WIP day it promises to be. So no matter where you go, take us with you, because there will always be good conversation waiting for you at 94 WIP. To begin our conversation this morning, a man from sports history. Good history, bad history, that's up to you to decide. I'm pleased to welcome here Brian McNamee, former New York City police officer and personal trainer. Among his personal training clients were New York Yankees pitcher Roger Clemens. Good morning, Brian McNamee. Hi, Peter. How are you this morning? I'm fine and welcome. I just wanted to, uh, real quick, I I was the strength and conditioning coordinator for New York Yankees and Toronto Blue Jays also, other than a New York City cop. Okay. And a personal trainer. Okay. All right. So what do you got? How's things going? It's going well. How'd you start? How'd you start out as a cop, though? Um, the cop was in my family. My father. I took an exam when I was in college. Obviously, I was I was I was in college to play pro ball. That didn't pan out. Came home from spring training after getting cut and became a cop. And that lasted for how long? Four years. Why'd you leave? Well, a little less than four years. Why'd you leave? I went into Major League Baseball as a as a uh, staff member, coach, assistant coach. And how do you make that transition, though? Because they're two very different kinds of jobs. Well, you, you know, being in the right place, uh, I was leaving the PD to become a, 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 you know, baseball was my life. The Being a police officer, which I loved, um, kind of fell upon me. And I was leaving. I had a grad assistantship at St. John's in education to become a uh, – um, to get my master's in education, I already passed the, the New York State Board of um, uh, Licensing Tests for teaching. So I obviously um, coaching high school baseball was not enough with, uh, to supplement my family or to make a decent living, so I had to teach. So I was already prepared to leave, and then through that I was playing um, somewhat of like a somewhat serious amateur baseball league with college buddies and stuff, and I was playing pretty well, and then I got an opportunity to try out for the Yankees and as a um, staff member to, to catch and pitch and, you know, be part of the, the Major League staff. So I took that opportunity before I was leaving for college and or for my master's in education. That must have been an incredible wow, though, to be able to be a part of the Yankee family. Yeah, it, I mean, everyone asks that. It's a it's it's a legitimate question, and I, I you know, somewhat look at it as you know, for, you know, being from New York, never really a fan of the Yankees or the Mets, just a fan of baseball. Um, people probably are underwhelmed with the way I respond. It, it was it was it was very hard work, and I was thrown into it with some great coaches and I learned an an extreme amount of information um, and dealt with a lot of great players and so it it was now that maybe I look back on it it's probably more overwhelming to me than or or as I think about it than it was at the time because it was hard work it was a lot of hard work it was long hours and I'm not downgrading it by any means but um, I never really thought of it as that, like, as, as you proposed that question. I never thought of it like that. How, though, do you learn to become a strength and conditioning coach? Well, it was, it, was, it was questioned to me because that was like a new field in the major leagues at the time. 
um, a strength and conditioning coach. So uh, being in the position I was in, I always worked out. And, you know, I always worked out wrong, but I worked out hard. And players would ask me questions. We had a strength coach at the time. So one of my one of my close confidants, Rick Down, the hitting coach, he said that's a way to make more money because I was in a one-dimensional um, or uh, one-tier earning uh, uh, one-tier earning salary position. You know, once you start to ask for too much money, they just get somebody else, so they try to get somebody else. So anyway, to go into that that position, I had four year I had four year college degree that was in administration, athletic administration, business, sports. So uh, I started to study. I started to study, and I started taking the appropriate exams. Um, and then I got hired for – I actually didn't have that position in the early 90s with the Yankees. I, my first job was the strength and conditioning coordinator with the Toronto Blue Jays. So that's where I got my first head job as a strength coach. And I would imagine, too, there's a lot of on-the-job learning. Yeah, every day is a learning period, especially when you're in, you're part of the medical staff. So, I mean, we're, our 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 uh, what we know now is not necessarily the same tomorrow, especially in the um, nutritional conditional um, aspect of of what we do, you know, and also therapy. I, I mean, I did, I, I've I have over twenty four hundred hours in therapy, um, just as internships, just doing internships. So, you know, you learn a lot of, you learn a lot in a little bit, um, and that's just the, the way school was, and it, was, it wasn't easy for me. It wasn't. But yet you kept at it. I, I saw a passion for it, and I also, you know, the ability to play at that level helped me. It did help me a lot, Peter. It helped me a lot to get the trust of the players because it's the one thing uh, in in the in the game that is optional. Like I can have ten players that that opt not to train or to condition, and everything starts at the bottom with me. I'm at the bottom of the medical staff, and if there's a problem with a player, if he's not performing, it's either he's not working out or he's working out too much. So, you know, you definitely take your lumps, but you, yeah, you have to stay on top of your game. But even as a uh, having the head job of strength and conditioning coordinator in in a different country. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm from Queens, New York, but uh, you know, he, he, you have to fight for it and you have to get better. But the fact that I also pitched batting practice, I caught in the bullpen during the games. I caught these guys. I threw to these guys at that level, and um, they are tremendous athletes. Um, extremely smart uh, for the most part, but uh, it, that helped me. It helped me a lot to be able to do those things because people in my position were not able to do that. You know, as, as they would say, people in my position in the, a part of the medical staff weren't that athletic. If not, they were, you know, runners or, you know, tennis players, not, not able to do those jobs that I did. Okay. So I became a commodity to a degree because okay. I eliminated four or five jobs by being able to do all those things. Um, it does sound like you're an amazing athlete to be able to do that, though. I, I had to work at it. I, I, I yes, I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty good. I'm still pretty good at the age of 50. But the thing is, <laughs> um, I, I try to get better every day. It's a, it's a sport of failure, you know, baseball. It's the only game that you can play and be really, really horrible at and be, be great. So, 
you know, the best player on the planet still has to get better tomorrow, still has to try to get better. And that's part of my job. I have to convince them that, you know, all right, so you're the best player in Major League Baseball or the world, you know, so what, we stop working? We, we just shut it down? Take it to the house? You know, things like that. So you have to be, a lot of it is psychological, too. You have to be their, you know, psychologist, their friend, their babysitter. Um, you know, nutrition plays a huge part. Uh, rest plays a huge part, you know, because you get the young guys that want to work too much. You get the old guys that don't want to work enough. And you're looking at, you know, in the major leagues, you're looking at guys that are 25, 24, and guys that are 34, 35. And the, and the careers now are so further long extended than they were back in, like, my high school days. They're, 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 you know, at the age of 30, now you're hitting your stride. Back then you were over the hill. So that's a big plus to the conditioning and nutritional changes. Now, you look at a player, though, when you make an assessment. How do you make an assessment if he's working out too much, too little, eating the wrong foods? What? How do you, how do, you do that? The assessment, if you're good at what you do, you can, I mean, it's not easy, but you can do it just by, you get a feel, you get a sense. Um, I'm not saying if the player just walked in for the first time, if he was a trade or such, but you, know, you get a feel and... You just go by, like, I don't, I'm not a guy that walks around and writes things down. I don't do that because I have everything in my head. I don't forget a thing. I know what a player is doing on every day and even an off day. So you get a sense for that, the body type, the age of the person, um, which does take into effect. Not that you want to tell them that, but it does. So you take into things into consideration, and then you try to, what you try to do is be able to massage it. Like, I have to say a hundred different things one way. To 100 different people I'm saying the same thing but a hundred different ways it's like speaking different languages because not everybody understands or gets it so you know it's it's a little bit of, of part of your craft you know everyone has a craft you have a craft you, you know you've done extremely well for yourself over there I know you're one of the leading guys in eight years over there for the sports talk and that's great so you've you worked out your little idiosyncrasies about how to make it work you know, mm-hmm. you just get a feel for it. You get a feel for it. You, get a, you have your pulse on it always, and then you get a feel for it. So there's really no class you can take. There's nothing you can study about that. You know, you got sometimes you got to put the books down, and you got to put, you know, like I, I always say, you got to say 100 things once, one thing 100 different ways. Yeah, that's somebody that, that, that knows their craft and knows their client. Um, but in this business, you have a lot of people that say one, it's either their way or the highway, one way, that's it. They're not going to be successful in this business, especially when you have the language barriers. You have everybody from all over the world playing in the major leagues now. So there's a lot of things that you have to, you know, adapt to. You have to be adaptable. It had to be hard though, trying to do your job and have a family life at the same time, because you're working all kinds of hours, traveling all kinds of places. Well, I don't have a family life now, life now, but uh, that was that had nothing to do with my job. Um, it's you adapt to the goods and the, and the pluses and minuses. You make it work, like anything. You know, you make it work. You know, you also you're home for four months out of the year. I don't know if anybody else has that type of job. Um, you, you know, you're you're home for four months out of the year. Occasional trip here and there, but that's it. You're home. So four months, you break it up. It kind of works out. You know, and then you're away two months out of the, two weeks out of the month for eight months. I think the longest stay is spring training, is is six weeks. 
but you know the family does reap those benefits too. They get to go to Disneyland once a year for ten years in a row. You know, they, there's a lot of benefits too to it. Absolutely. Um, you have any regrets as you've looked at it? Uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a great question that I haven't I've get asked that a lot, and. Um, I, I'm not sure how much you prepared your listeners as far as my background, but anyway, um, I don't know, Pete. I don't really know because I get asked it obviously a lot. Do I have any regrets? I know that I was the best at what I did, and I know I, I made mistakes, and I know I paid for them dearly. Um, I know that my job description was to protect these players at all times on and off the field. So that prayer probably, whether you call it a cop-out or not, enabled me to enable them to do things they shouldn't have been doing uh, and in the safest way possible as opposed to how they were doing it before I decided to help. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was wrong, and I made some crucial mistakes. But, you know, I don't know, Peter. I really don't know if I would change. That's a great question. Those mistakes being... Helping these players get performing enhancing drugs, including anabolic steroids, amphetamines, and humans. I didn't really. I I, procure, I I only helped them a little bit, but see, that's another misconception people might have of me. I I was a well vetted trainer. If, I'm a glorified trainer, if you want to call it that. Like people at my level, you would insult them if you called them a trainer. But the thing is, I helped them inject them. They they basically procured them themselves. Um, I never bought it, sold it. I was never part of it. And the misconception is that well, through some of the media outlets that portrayed me as just this, this steroid-toting gym trainer, you know, like a, you know, a guru wannabe person, and I never liked that word either. But, you know, I, I, the mistake I made was enabling them to do it properly and safely. And, you know, I should have said no, and I didn't. And... That's what, yeah, I guess that's what I'm referring to. Where did the pressure come from, though, to enable? There was really no pressure from anybody. It was asked by clients that I try to talk out of, and they made the decision to do it. But what, being in the locker rooms, I saw what they were, the other players were taking, and the stuff they were taking was, like, uh, was insanely bad probably for them. Um, I had a limited knowledge of it. Uh, in the beginning when I was asked to do it by Clemens when he bought it and asked me to inject him. Um, I had a very limited knowledge on it. And so I had to, I had to take a crash course because I don't like, you know, my biggest thing is I love to be wrong to learn, but I, I definitely don't like not knowing something. But I did help him with that, and I did okay. I said okay to that. There wasn't any pressure from him, but, you know, he was my employee, and I had a, you know, I did have a, a job you know, statement of, of what my, my duties of in my job. And I, I, you can actually say that's a cop-out maybe, but I, I still never said I wasn't right or wrong. I was wrong. What I did was wrong. And, you know, uh, I had to work with the government to get that right. All right. Um, this may be a dumb question, but why is the use of those various substances wrong? Well, at the time... It was, you know, they were steroids were a Schedule One drug, meaning that it's an, almost deemed as a, as a narcotic. So it's the same same thing as cocaine. You know, it's the same legality as cocaine is steroids. 
then they were banned but never tested for. They were banned by Major League Baseball. They were never tested for. So therefore, you know, the cop-out from players that got caught and or implicated, they said, well, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't tested for. So meaning it wasn't tested for, meaning it wasn't illegal. It was, it was illegal socially. It was illegal in the public eye and in the, in, in the being a, you know, as far as the law, it was illegal. So whether you did it to increase your performance or, yes, it's also wrong because it, is, it does increase your performance. It enhances your performance. It makes a good player better. It makes a better player great. That's what it does. So if you take, and I, I scuffle with this, this conversation or this decision every day, where if you have a very good player, and a draft is coming up in June, so I, I do deal with this a lot. So you have a very good player that's draftable, he's a prospect, and then you have the same one. There's only certain there's only so many spots. You only have so many spots. So if the player that's looking for your spot and you're trying to you got his spot and he's taking something to that's illegal in the eyes of the law, but the thing that he's taking illegally will increase or, or his performance, enhance his performance. So that makes him better than the person that isn't taking it. The person that isn't taking it loses that spot. So that's where the gray area comes in where, you know, how do you compete? How do you compete when you want to do it the right way? You want to, you know, go. And I, I've told many players this, even in, in the league, that I said, you know, when the Clemens stuff came out about him using steroids, you know, I wanted to make sure the players that I was training, we're talking, you know, borderline Hall of Fame type players, I said, listen, I hope you don't think that was the reason for the performance because I believe in my product. My product is my programs, my mythology, how I work, how I go about it. So I wanted to make sure that wasn't going to be a question. So I did go out of my way to ask my other clients about that. And they, they obviously they, they reneged on it. They said, no, I just love the way I feel and, you know, so on and so forth. But I have, you know, if I was, if you were in a, a position, and I do this when I lecture in front of, you know, guidance counselors and so on, like, it's the old, it's the old question of if you can take a pill that's going to make you more money and make you the best in the field, but you'd be dead in five years. Everybody says they would take that, and that's the Olympic gold medal question. So everybody's looking to cheat, and the old saying also is, if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. And that's just the, the mentality of the society that we live in. It really is. But what am I supposed to tell a 20-year-old kid that is draftable or is, is, is should or could get a four-year scholarship that there's only so many slots, but the guys he's better than are taking stuff to enhance their performance, that's not legal, and that stuff makes them better. So, what do you? How do you? How do you do that? How, like, that is, I like my position is to educate, educate as much as possible, and also be on on the cutting edge of knowing what's new and what's latest. If that answers your question, yeah, it, it gives me an answer. Yes, um, it helps people be better, but athletics in general, and certainly athletics involving substances, helps you also burn out, doesn't it? Well, uh, uh, one thing does one thing, another thing does another. Do you know what that means? That's like a trick question, I oh, guess. Okay. Uh, that's, a riddle, that's a riddle for you. No, well, no, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's not true. 
that's not true. Not actually, um, there's such a combination of certain drugs that will allow you to get the most out of your talent, but also enable you not to burn out or get injured because you take other products to prevent that too. It's, it's called masking, or not masking so much as, it's like cycling certain drugs and, and other drugs together to, you cover one thing and the one thing might might cause one thing, so you take another thing to do that. It's like, and then it becomes a plethora of, of you know, you become a pharmacologist and a pharmacist where you just go, you know, you try to cover every base. You have to take a little of this, a little of that, and that's how it's worked. But no, that that's not... Even off the, the cuff, that no, that's not true. It actually allows you to recover quicker, work harder, and does increase eye, hand-eye coordination, and it does it does increase power and recovery, and that's the hardest thing. I mean, do you know another game, baseball, that plays 162 games? You know, I, I got amphetamines banned from, uh, from Major League Baseball. When they banned steroids, they, they didn't do amphetamines. But do you know what it's like to play a night game in New York, fly to California, and play, and then uh, a five-and-a-half, six-hour flight, then get up? You have to be at the ballpark at four, California time, and play a night game, and then a day game, and then leave for Texas? You know, there, that was probably the, one of the most performance-enhancing drugs were amphetamines. And That's you- what I think. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Brian McNamee, former New York City police officer, strength and conditioning coach in Major League Baseball, personal trainer, and a whole lot more. Brian? Yes, sir. If you had a son, high school, or even starting in college, and he said, I want to take performance-enhancing drugs, what would you tell him? There'd be nobody better than me to handle that. Um, I would, I, it, it, me being me, I would have to look at it, and I'd have to have a serious conversation with him, because not only would he is my, he my son, but I also don't want him doing something behind my back. I don't want him to lie to me. So that's where you get into, you know, a little bit of a it gets a little sketchy because if he's going to make that decision to do it, and I would think it, my son at the high school level is going to be an extremely intelligent person and he's going to think for himself, but I'm also going to teach him to grow up, not to lie to me. And I I would want him to tell me the truth. And I think I would have to do the best I could to discourage it. But also if he made that decision or that choice, I would have to, I would have to help him. That's what I would have to do as a parent. How about if he came to you and said, Dad, coach wants me to take these drugs? Well, then that's going to be an, that's going to be an issue. With That's going to be a huge issue that you'll probably read about on the back page of the paper, that, that there's going to be a problem with that coach. Mm-hmm. And, yes, you know what, that's a great point, Peter, because that does go on today. It does. And that's something that, you know, I would have to put my hat, my dad hat on, and I don't, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of dads out there that would agree with me. That's not, I'm a professional. I'm an expert, and that's unfortunate, but those are big terms, for so that's what I am. Coaches that coach high school aren't, but that does happen a lot, especially in Texas. 
a great deal in Arizona and Texas, mainly Texas. That does, they do, kids get pressured, and the parents unknowingly do okay it. But where is Texas? It's right on the border of Mexico. That's where they get the drugs from. And, you know, the, as much as you think or people think that the epidemic of, and it was an epidemic of steroid use in baseball in the 90s, early 2000s, um, it's worse than it ever was. It really was. It really is. It's really worse than it ever was. It's just not as pronounced. The guys aren't getting as, as cartoonish. But um, I'm just telling you, Peter. Uh, personally, I, I I would have I would have some uh, uh, a private meeting with that coach. That's what I would do. But that's a personal, private parent thing. And I would hope the coach would be able to walk out after you were done. Uh, no, that would. I'd be going to jail. That's a that's a guarantee. Okay. And I think I would hope every parent would agree with me. They, you know, the coaches cannot do that. And it's unfortunate that they do, they do put those pressures on kids. And it's unfortunate. Well, then how does a parent encourage their child to be good at athletics and not succumb to the pressures? What do you do? As far as coming to the, succumbing to the pressures, a lot of that, I think first comes from the parents. So it's not what the, I, w- I wouldn't be telling, I mean, and I would coach and lecture parents on, on that, but a lot of the problems come from the parents. And a lot, a lot of the problems I have today are, are not from the players, they're from the parents. So I'll, it's a tough question because let's get to the parents first. Let's educate the parents first. And you would hope that they had a, you know, because as you would call the high school years of being rebellious and not listening to parents, you know what, that, that, that has to be changed. And that's where you're going to push a kid away to make them do things when you say, you know, that's why I never say don't do something. I just give the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, I just give, I just give information. I try to teach, educate. That's what I do. But I would try to educate the parents, and at the end of the day, it's up to them on how they're going to deal with their child. And then... If they get to handle that, that that should be able to enable them to handle the coaches in situations like that. Like, I I interviewed for a high school baseball job at a pretty prominent town out east where I live in Long Island. And, you know, when I was coming in, it was just, you know, because I trained some of the kids, the parents, and that program is terrible, but it's a really rich school, and they could care less. But, you know, the I had everybody in the office, everybody, like people – took off from other jobs to be in the office because I was interviewing. And I did it as a favor, but my point is, is in a 45-minute interview, 40 minutes or 30 minutes of it were asking me not how to make the team better, how to deal with, you know, the team getting better and how would I coach and my mythology on coaching. It was how, how would I deal with the parents? How would I deal with the parents? Seriously? So... I'm just giving you an example of what, what goes on with the, the they're hiring a coach to deal with the parents, but the parent you're asking me how to how would I tell the parents how to deal with the coach? So it goes both ways. Mm. And it's terrible. You know, the whole the whole thing has to be changed as far as kids starting, you know, sports as they, they grow and they get involved with every level of sports and it's you know the whole the the whole thing. It's actually a comedy routine where every kid gets a trophy. No, no. 
You know, you have to, the fact that when I didn't get a trophy, that just made me work harder. As opposed to getting a trophy? No. That, that to me, that makes a lot of sense as far as the educating and the psyche of a child. You can't give every kid, a, you know, kids got to want to work. Kids got to want to play. And they have to work, and, you know, but it's a really hard thing to do to be a student athlete. It really is extremely hard to compete at the level that you want to compete at and then to go to a school and, and to be a student. And if you're lucky to get any money to play ball at college, if you're lucky, there's like less than 1.5% of the world that gets a scholarship to college. And that they have to be a student athlete. And you have to succumb to the NCAA rules, get certain grades, carry certain credits. But also, you've got to play baseball full-time. Gets difficult, to say the least. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Brian McNamee. Baseball, strength and conditioning, coach, and a whole lot more. All right, Brian. The biggie, the Mitchell Report. How did, how did it all come crashing down on your head? Well, it was interesting, Peter. It, well, it was like a twofold crushing on me where one I got the call from the government and then obviously I, I worked with the government uh, you know you can't lie to them and that was not something I was willing to do even though I, I tried a little bit only because of the, the pressures I put on myself to be in that position but I had to tell them the truth and then it was like a uh, it was like a parallel investigation they were getting information with the threat of lying to them they were getting information, and then they were they were they were working with Mitchell to get him to finish his report on steroids in baseball. So um, it, it it got me sick. It was overwhelming. Um, I you know it was one of those I can't believe it things where I can't believe this is happening, but I couldn't I couldn't lie, and I didn't want to talk to Mitchell. I fought to talk to Mitchell, not to talk to him, and. I had no choice. There was no choice on the planet of me getting out of that. So it was extremely overwhelming. There was a little bit, you know, everyone says when they get caught, there's a little bit of relief. But, like, I, I couldn't say that because, it was, like I said, it wasn't part of my program. It wasn't something that I, I was heavily involved with, but I was. And the information that I had was valuable to the abuse of steroids and growth hormone and amphetamines in baseball. It was extremely important for them to accomplish what they needed to accomplish. And the government used their powers to help Mitchell. Obviously, being a, uh, having a lot of governmental juice um, with, the, with the success he had as senator, so he got a lot of support. And that's pretty much... You know what, what? What I went through. I mean, besides, I mean, I could never actually go into it detail to detail. But it was, it was not. Let's say it just was not a good thing. It was not a happy moment in my life. What were the consequences for you, though? The consequences for me was if I didn't tell the truth, and they propose every question like they know the answer. So, you know, my background in law enforcement you know, is, is pretty extensive. I've done a lot in a little bit of time, and I, I got to say 
man, I mean, my last years were on the cover, and we did a lot of interrogation work, detective work uh, as an undercover officer. But the thing is, they did their job extremely well. But I also wasn't your atypical witness. Um, like, they didn't scare me. I was under no threat. But the consequences would have been, you know, you lie. We hold over the head for six years that you perjured yourself. And you can't. Nothing is, um, nothing to an FBI special agent is um, confidential. Nothing is secure. Nothing. Anything you say to them, even if you think you're kidding, is open to prosecution or, you know, speculation. So you, you can't be candid with them. So I believe they... they they conducted, I mean, I could complain about it because I was taught in the same schools of, of that stuff. But they, 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 for them to make me think they had things before they asked me, put me on a position to tell the truth even more. So it tells me that, you know, they did their job pretty well because they didn't really. But the fact that they let me believe that um, was that they were able to get more truth out of me than they normally would have. It was the end of your major league career, though, wasn't it? That was in 07. I was still training major league players. Okay. Yeah, I was actively training um, privately, but uh, that was in 07. And I kind of... <coughs> sorry. Um, sorry. I finished about, yeah, right up to the... The Mitch report came out on December 15th, but what I did was... I didn't tell, I was still training Andy Pett and Roger Clemens at the time, full-time, and I never went to them with it because it was in-season, and I was told the whole time, and they lied to me, the government lied to me, Mitchell lied, lied to me, they said it was just a fact-finding report, and the fact-finding report was based on where it started, how it started, how it got out of control, and how to stop it. They, they always told me that they wouldn't mention names. So it was something that I was going through privately, thinking that they would never mention names. So I didn't find out that they were mentioning names until three days prior to the report release on December 15th. So that's when the, my whole world was rocked to, to an extensive degree. Do you have any contact with Roger Clemens today? No, none, none whatsoever. We we did a couple of art, like, well, he he went out and acted like a horse's ass the other day. Um, I think it was two weeks ago. He went on the Joe Buck show and just uh, made some once again out of nowhere. He just makes some stupid comments. So um, I did get inundated with calls and and requests to do articles um, in response to that. But Mitchell jumped in because he he accused Mitchell of really taking bribes from Major League Baseball. He accused him of taking, like, this guy comes out of nowhere, tells Mitchell, calls Mitchell taking bribes, which is an extensive crime, and then he said something about me getting sick to his stomach every time he hears my name. So I had to respond, but I, I didn't get angry. I, I don't care. I just called him a, you know, he's a grammar school bully, just like Armstrong, just like a big bully. And you know what? Let it go, man. He, I said, he, you know, he did ruin my life. He ruined it. So get over it. Get over it and move past it. You know, you got to come out of nowhere and start bringing this crap up. And he says that if I had known what I know now, what? New stuff came out? Like new stuff came out? What is he talking about? 
And for some reason, the media gives him a pass, uh, like, to talk like that. They don't call him on his stuff. I mean, I know he got crushed quite a bit by any other outlet that listens, that they crushed him. But my, I did a nice little article just saying, you know, you're a bully. Get over it. You know, <clears throat> but, but no, if, to answer your question, no, there's no contact with Clemens. But if you could meet him today for a beer, what would you say to him? I'd probably ask him who's paying, but <laughs> um, I would just, like I had written, I would just say why, you know, in a, in a non-confrontational way, if that's, that one, that'll never happen. Two, I mean, you're asking me a hypothetical question. Uh, in Fairyland, if that had happened, um, I would just say why, why, why? But I would be hesitant to do that because I just don't want to hear him lying no more. I just don't want to hear it. It just... You know, he, he's a pathological liar. That's what he is. And I can't hear it anymore. You know, there's not a person on the planet that has half an IQ that, that, that would think he's telling the truth. And he committed, he was guilty of three crimes before I even took the stand. And, yes, I agree, I wasn't the most credible witness, but I told the truth. I had the truth, and and I was hammered for months after months about it. Same questions over and over. I just told the truth. And he had everybody else lie for him, too. So he was not guilty of six six charges. He was guilty of three before I even took the stand. And I'm looking at the jury, and the jury's sleeping. It was like it was like when I was a college professor. I'm looking at my students. They're all sleeping. So <laughs> the jury's sleeping. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's criminal that it... It, it was the whole process I went through was criminal. The grand, uh, the prosecutors did a horrible job, and his lawyers did a horrible job. But you know what? I guess they did less of a horrible job than the prosecutors. Well, um, what are you doing today? Today? Yeah, that's a great question, Peter. I'm a uh, well. My biggest thing is I I advise. Cardillo weight belts, they're, they're a company out of Boston. And actually, I think his weight belts are made in Pennsylvania. And what there's a company called Sex Energy Drink. And Sex Energy Drink, what happens, uh, part of my problem also is I can't recommend a product, a supplement, a nutritional product without trying it. So for the last two months, I've been trying this, this, this energy drink, like, like a Red Bull um, that type of drink, mm-hmm. but it's called Sex, S-E-X. And it's a play on words or, or letters. It's strength, endurance, and it extends your workout. And it, it actually is one of the better products I've ever had. And I, I deal with Amazon, so you can get that product on Amazon. But an interesting story, I don't know how much you followed me as far as uh, a movie script. There was a movie script last year that was written, or actually a year and a half ago. And it was the number one movie script that sold uh, in Hollywood. It was called The Rocket. And I have the script. And it was god-awful. God-awful. And I'm like, this, it makes me, it actually looks like I wrote it because it makes me look out to be really good in this script. But it's terrible. I mean, really terrible. So um, Bradley Cooper's behind it. And it sold. They got a lot of money. These two writers just wrote it. They said they wrote it. Um, based on news articles and stuff like that. So 
I wasn't happy about that because a lot of people made a lot of money off my name. And I'm pretty loyal. And like I said, between Cordillo weight belts and the sex energy drink, other than that, I have a very few clients. I'm, I'm battling, you know, injuries nonstop and trying to take care of my health. But I was approached from this guy, Ken, who introduced me to a guy. And this guy's a writer. And he already wrote a script. It's called The Shots We Take. And he asked me to read it. And I said, okay. But I was a little standoffish at first, you know, because I, I get inundated with people like that all the time, always wanting something from me. And I got nothing. But anyway, I read the script, and he's asking me to advise on it. It's it's the shots we take. It's really about me. It's a fictionist, it's a fictionist take on the steroid problem in baseball. So I read it, and I was extremely taken back by his take on it. And... I'm asked to advise on it. So he's got a couple of producer friends that are interested, and I got somebody I can maybe send it to. So I might jump on board on that. I might. Well, we'll I, I do. I do like it, and I do think it'll do well. That's I definitely can tell you. We'll Compared to that other script, the other script is terrible. We'll certainly be watching for it. I hope so. I hope you'll see it. What can we learn from your story, though? What's, what should we know? If I was teaching the audience on mistakes, morality, and, and you know, what, I, what you should learn is, and this happens a lot, just obviously, you know, at my level, it was global um, because the Major League Baseball runs the world. I think I, I, would, I would teach younger people and I would try to advise parents that, you know, It's called, like, you, you get wrapped into, we also were taught this when we were rookie cops, is don't, don't, don't get caught up with two older guys on a job that are cynical and this and that. Don't get caught up in doing things that you wouldn't normally do. Don't do it just because this person is famous, has money, and you think it's okay That's you know, go with your gut feeling. Because, you know what, even when I was doing what I did, and yes, I did do it, and yes, I admitted it and told the truth about it, and yes, it was wrong, but... You know, in my gut, I, I, was, I knew I was doing something wrong. I knew it. So the only thing I would say, if I can go back in life and, and look at every time I, I didn't feel good about something, and I'm no angel, but I try to help a lot of people all the time. But when people propose certain things to me, I go with my gut now. I listen to it because my gut is never wrong. And that's something you can't teach. You can't teach... You, you could talk about it, but you can't really talk. Yeah, like you can't. Yeah, obviously, you know, the law is the law. So, yeah, don't break the law. But also there's moral things that aren't right either, that aren't, you know, necessarily against the law. But listen to your gut feeling when it comes to a moral, ethical issue. You know, try to try to be a good person. Try to, try to live your life the way you want to be lived. Treat people the way you want to be treated. But when it comes down to the situation I was caught up in, and, and as I told you, Pete, I'm not really sure about what I would do differently um, in that situation. That's how strongly I feel about my position and what I know and what I can do. Um, I would just say go with your gut, and if you got, if you don't, if it doesn't feel right, then then try to try to take a step back. Don't be impulsive. Do not make an impulsive decision. So don't be impulsive. Take a step back. Listen to your gut, and. At the end of the day, you might not like that decision, but at the end of the week, you will. 
Amen to that. Someone once described that decision process you talked about to me is, would you want to explain what you've done to your grandmother? And the answer is, if the answer is no, then don't do it. That's a good one. I like that. I'm going to use that. You're welcome to it. And I'd I'd like to say thank you to Brian McNamee for an intriguing interview. I know I've learned a lot. Good luck, Brian, in your future life. All right, Peter. Thanks for everything. You have a great day. You too. And you're listening to Conversation here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. More good conversation in just a bit. The WIP time, 645. And it's conversation. I'm back. It's Peter Solomon. My guest now, Dr. Joel Salinas, MD, and author now of the new book, Mirror Touch, Notes from a Doctor Who Can Feel Your Pain. Good morning, Dr. Salinas. Good morning. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. What do you mean, feel your pain? I mean, people say all the time, I feel your pain, but I'm not sure what (laughs) they mean, and I'm not sure what you mean. Yeah, so... uh... What so I have a kind of a my brain wiring is a little little bizarre in terms of how I experience empathy, uh, and what I mean by that is what I see someone else feel, I physically feel on my body. So if you're gasping for air, I feel it. If you're having a panic attack, I feel it. Um, and specifically, it's due to something called mirror touch synesthesia. So synesthesia is a general term for the experience of the blending of the senses, and it's usually due to sense areas in the brain um, being wired together a lot more or just being more active together. So someone with synesthesia might see colors with numbers and letters or experience shapes with sounds or tastes with textures. Um, like for example, for myself, uh, I have multiple forms of synesthesia, and one of the forms I have is color numbers uh, and color letters. So the letter C for me is black, and the letter A is red, and the letter T is red-orange. And altogether, the word cat is kind of a mix of black and red and red-orange. But one specific form of synesthesia I have is called mirror touch synesthesia, uh, where I have that experience where the visual information that comes into, into my brain essentially gets translated into physical uh, kind of a physical experience. So I physically feel kind of what I see other people feeling. Um, so if you were to touch the right side of your face, I would feel it on the left side of my face as if I were being physically touched. And that's due to uh, a brain system that everybody has. Uh, it's essentially uh, we have what's called mirroring networks, essentially where when you see somebody else moving or being touched or in pain, your brain is translating kind of that information that you're seeing into touch information, into kind of like a 3D virtual reality-like simulation. Um, for everybody, that goes on without, without realizing it. It's unconscious, except every once in a while, the experience gets um, kind of strong enough that it does go into consciousness. So, for example, if you see someone uh, get tackled at a football game or hyperextend their knee all of a sudden or uh, crash a bicycle and hit their face, that cringe you get, that oof, that feeling that you get, well, that's that mirroring network becoming heightened so you feel as if it happened to you. But for two out of 100 people who have mirror touch synesthesia, those brain areas tied to the mirroring network are actually larger and more active. And um, there's another part of this where people who have mirror touch synesthesia, well, we all have brain areas that help us to tell the difference between our physical body and the body of other people around us. Uh, but in people with mirror touch synesthesia, those brain areas are smaller and less active. So this mirroring network is extremely active. So the experience of the people that you see around you as if it were your own is heightened in conscious all the time. 
How did you get so lucky? Or how did you get so cursed? I'm not sure which it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, it took me a while to, to figure that out myself. Um, you know, it's uh, something that I've always had. Um, you know, I always thought that I was a, you know, an odd or different in some way. And I just talked to, to being a really weird kid. Um, even like watching cartoons as a, as a kid, I was very immersed in that world. So watching Roadrunner, if Roadrunner sticks out his tongue, my tongue feels like it's sticking out. If Wiley Coyote gets hit by a truck, I feel like I get hit by a truck. Uh, it was only until medical school, the first year of medical school, that I realized that synesthesia was even a thing, let alone that my sensory world was so different compared to other people. Um, and then throughout kind of the last few years, um, the whole area of research around synesthesia, but also mirror touch synesthesia has made some really profound developments. And the first case of mirror touch synesthesia was reported in 2005. But even since then, um, a number of kind of mainstream reputable journals have published a lot of work looking at mirror touch synesthesia using things like structural MRI to look at how the brain looks in people with mirror touch synesthesia and functional MRI to see how the brain's working and a whole lot of other, other studies in multiple universities. So, it's, uh, it's really made a lot of progress in terms of understanding what it is. Um, and this kind of whole brain system, it's, I think it's fascinating in that everybody has a, this hardware in, in our brains. Um, and I, I feel like because it's so closely tied to this experience of empathy and experiencing the experience of others, I think we, I think we all have kind of the capacity for this. Um, and I think it fits essentially along a spectrum. And whether or not you kind of fall under this experimentally validated kind of label of mirror touch and a seizure or not, I think the less less profound is the fact that we all kind of fit somewhere along along that. And like many parts of the brain, if you engage it, um, you have a chance of developing it as well, kind of reprogramming your brain, so to speak. And so part of what I kind of talk about in the book is not just about mirror touch and a seizure and how the brain works, but um, more importantly, how to develop your own heightened, more engaged sense of empathy. And I do that through kind of sharing stories of my life on my journey um, to become a neurologist, uh, which means I treat brain and nerve diseases, but also my journey kind of as a person up until now. And then I also share a lot of stories about people with atypical brains and atypical bodies. And um, I talk about kind of the most relevant history um, about their, con- their conditions and the most current research a- around it. That has got to be overwhelming at times, though. You say you're a neurologist. Um, that's right. That's right. About a year yeah, ago. I, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say that, um, you know, initially um, it was a bit of a challenge. The the rare and unexpected circumstances um, that, I con- that I'm confronted with can be so vivid that I have a hard time telling the difference between kind of objective physical reality and in my internally generated kind of uh, subjective reality. Um, so, um, for example, in my neurology training, as I was beginning to see patients with tick and Tourette disorders, um, I re- distinctly recall there's one patient who had developed self-mutilating ticks and was setting up a lot of stress. And so he, he, he chews on the side of his mouth with his ticks and he uses his knuckle and he pushes up against his teeth. And uh, it got to the point where he split his cheek apart like shredded beef mm. and kind of seeing him is just so intense where it, it feels as if I have a stun gun pressed against my face being triggered every time he pushes on his face and grinds his teeth. Um, it's a, and it's as if it's happening um, on my body. Um, so the, the first time certainly is, is really challenging, um, but 
the more I expose myself to these new situations or surprising situations, the less of an, less vivid it, the experience is. And I think um, part of my medical training was to not not avoid those circumstances, to really say, hey, this, this is something that could be really meaningful for my patient and this will help my patients in the future. So I need to be awake and really be, be here and experience this to the fullest. And I found that not only did meritocinesthesia draw me into medicine, but also really helped shape me as a doctor. Uh, sharing in kind of that, some of that pain and suffering with my patients, they feel a little less alone. And if you've ever been sick or known someone who's been sick in the hospital, you know that that means a lot in medicine. Absolutely. About a year ago, Dr. Salinas, I had back surgery from a, neurosur- <laughs> from a neurosurgery. He took, out some <laughs> bo- he took out some bone and replaced it with metal rods and screws. If you had been my doctor, that might have been incredible for you. Yeah, I mean, it, it might have been helpful uh, to, to have that experience as well. I found that the meritus synesthesia can help me with, with clinical cues from time to time. So uh, recently I was um, consulted in the hospital uh, because there was this uh, girl who was admitted she had cerebral palsy. And because of the cerebral palsy, she uh, couldn't speak and she was developmentally delayed. Um, you know, and that's just part of part of her life. But she had been admitted to the hospital, and one day in the hospital she woke up just really agitated and combative. She was swinging at her nurses and her nurses' aides. And so they called me to essentially come and prescribe a, a sedative medication to calm her down. I walk into the room and I feel kind of the beads of sweat that are on her face as if they're on my face, the kind of mahogany strands of her hair kind of stuck to her forehead as if they're stuck. I feel that on my forehead as well. I feel the furrowed brow on her, on her face. And that's all kind of typical of my of my experiences. But then there's another feeling that I, that I can't shake, and it's this mirrored feeling of my chest rising and falling faster than my own physical chest. Um, and then there's another feeling that's, subtle and almost negligible, and it's the feeling of the shoulder muscles in my body as if they're activating and rising up and down. And so based off of those cues, I decide to trust my body, trust my meritus synesthesia, and I recommend some extra tests, and the results come back, and it turns out that she had blood clots in her lungs. Mm. So she wasn't agitated because she was angry or, or necessarily delirious, but because she was literally fighting for air. And I don't necessarily think I would have caught that without the mirror touch synesthesia. Um, but it, it also helps me with the emotional cues to my patients, which I, I find to be some of the most rewarding experiences. I had one patient, he had narrowly dodged a really, really terrifying stroke uh, uh, in the hospital one day uh, that would have left him very incapacitated. And so um, he was able to... To, to dodge that, and he left the hospital um, w- without it, just fine. And when I see him in follow-up clinic, he, you know, he's, his diet has changed. He's exercising every day. All of his numbers are just perfect. And I'm congratulating him, and um, I'm I'm feeling mirrored in my body, um, kind of an odd experience of joy that is unlike the typical kind of joy that I feel with other people. It feels almost forced. So I, I press him on this. And he just starts to cry. Um, he breaks down, and it turns out that he's been depressed and anxious, essentially tortured by the fear that he was going to have another stroke. As he called it, he was a dead man walking. And, you know, that sort of thing, an MRI can't tell you, lab tests can't tell you, even a standard physical exam can't tell you. And because of it, we were able to have a more earnest conversation and put together a plan, and eventually his quality of life improved. And 
I think kind of this heightened state of empathy that comes with this mirror touch and anesthesia was really helpful in that. And, and I think it's much more than just echoing the experience of another person. I think um, what, what, what's key is really having a more engaged sense of empathy. And that's something that I really, really hone in on, kind of not just noticing, recognizing, and feeling the experience of another person, but then reasoning through that experience and then responding. And oftentimes, you know, as a physician, it can mean prescribing a medica- medication, but a-, a lot of the time it really just means uh, kind of being generous with my time, um, asking more questions, being curious, listening with intention, really being present with my patient. And that- that's something that um, that is important for, for anybody, and not-, not just healthcare providers, just having an opportunity to really place value, enough value in the perspective of another person that you don't, um, you're not just willing to hear, but you actually really want to hear um, and, and learn about another person's perspective to see how they see and live through the world, asking kind of why, why are they angry, why are they happy, why are they sad, and, and then reasoning through that and finding kind of like what are those uncomfortable kind of um, perspectives that they have that, um, that you don't but trying to really see kind of where they're coming from. But why another human being like me is doing what they're doing or saying what they're doing. I would imagine, though, before you came to your understanding of, synes- of synesthesia or synesthesia, that's a tongue twister. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. It definitely is. I would imagine there were times you wondered if you were a little crazy. Oh, yeah. I, uh, and that's something that I, I really... Um, experienced when I was in in medical school with these because the experiences became very very vivid and so I had to figure out ways to to reason through it and also to to essentially kind of um, cope with the experiences and I found what I what I needed to do a lot of the time was practice without even knowing that it was practice mindfulness um, and not even like the, the mindfulness meditation that involves sitting and kind of, you know, like focusing for, for, for several minutes It just being really present in the moment, really um, focusing in on, on my own body, my own physical body, not necessarily the body of the other person. Uh, oftentimes it just meant thinking about the feeling of the tongue in my mouth or my toes in my socks or looking at a, at a part of the room that didn't have a facial expression like a doorknob or, or a collar or a sleeve. Um, but it definitely took a lot of practice and, and it took a lot of willingness to, um, to be in those, in those circumstances. So that way the next time it wouldn't be, wouldn't be as vivid. What's to learn from your experience with mirror touch? Well, with mirror touch synesthetes, you know, they have uh, an automatic ability, essentially, to identify with another's pain. Um, but empathy begins for most of us with a willingness to try and understand what it's like to be in another person's shoes. Um, so my hope with this book is that people won't just learn more about mirror touch synesthesia and how the brain works, but more importantly, learn how to develop this heightened or engaged sense of empathy, you know, just really engaging in this experience um, and in the process uh, developing it. I mean, could you imagine how different the world would be if we didn't just think about what it's like to be in other people's shoes, but also feel what it's like to be in other people's shoes, to then reason through that experience and respond from a truer, more enduring place of compassion and kindness. Hmm. Do you think this is something that can be taught, though, or you have to be born with it? Well, there's there's two big aspects to this experience of the mirroring network, and one is kind of what's the 
the hardwiring that you're born with, what's your capacity for it. And then the other half of it, which I think is, is critical, is your willingness to engage in the experience and to, and to process it. And we know that the brain is, is highly plastic. It's constantly not just rewiring but also reprogramming on the short scale. And I think this is something you, you don't necessarily need to get into that extreme of mirror-touch synesthesia, and, and I don't think that many people have kind of the, the type of brain wiring that's, that leads to mirror-touch synesthesia, but I think increasing that experience of empathy or at least just being more engaged in it will create new connections but also kind of reprogram the brain so that way it becomes more of a reflex to kind of get more involved in the perspective of the other person and reasoning through it and being a more compassionate human being. Um, we know uh, even from just uh, with um, compassion-focused meditation, uh, 30 minutes once a day for two weeks, we already see physical changes to the brain um, that involve kind of tying uh, more of an experience of reward to to alleviating the suffering of another person, but also kind of those perspective-taking parts of the brain that, uh, that, that are critical for that, those areas actually become larger and the, there's more connections tied to them and also just regulating your own experiences. So I think that everyone has the ability to kind of develop the, the the brain programming needed to be more empathetic, but also to be more compassionate and kinder to other people. And I think that's such an important, that's a sort of, such an important thing for our species to develop so we can continue to survive and evolve and thrive. Did this run in your family though? I mean, is there a genetic component to it? That's interesting. Synesthesia seems to have a genetic component to it. So synesthesia in general, about four out of 100 people will have synesthesia. Uh, and typically it's found in artists and musicians. So, for example, like Tori Amos, Billy Joel, uh, Stevie Wonder, Lord, Skrillex, they all have um, kind of color sound synesthesia. Um, and see that synesthesia tends to be just very pr- provocative because it helps us to, to think and feel in different ways. Um, the genetics of synesthesia in general seems that, I mean, as far as we know, is that if you have synesthesia, there's a higher chance that somebody else in your family has synesthesia. And some of the genetic studies show that maybe there's some overlap in genes tied to autistic spectrum disorders, actually. Um, and specifically, uh, with mirror synesthesia, what we find is um, that there's some overlap in the the sensory experiences of people with autistic spectrum disorders and people who have synesthesia and specifically mirror touch synesthesia. So if you were to find out um, whether people with autistic spectrum disorders have um, have synesthesia, you find that they have a higher percentage uh, of synesthesia compared to the general population. So there may be some overlap there. It's not really clear, and I think that that's still yet to be figured out. Well, if you ever have children, do you think they might have it? I think it's possible. I think it's possible. And, you know, I and I kind of hope that they have it, mostly because, you know, for me, it, it, I had to figure whether it was, it was a gift or a curse, and I think in the end I would consider it a gift. But it's also just an intrinsic part of, of me seeing the world. It really is a part of me. It, without it, I feel like I would be in a different world. Um, it's just been a, such a natural part of how I experience um, everything around around me physically and internally as well that I just couldn't imagine what my life would be like without it. And it made you a better doctor? I feel like it has. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to know kind of experimentally whether it clearly makes me a better clinician, um, 
to be able to speak with 100% confidence, but, you know, I feel... Hello? From, yeah, okay. Hello? Yeah, we're here. Uh, from my own perspective, I, I feel like it, it has helped me to be a better doctor. Um, it really informs and bolsters my sense of empathy. I, but, I, I, again, I couldn't imagine what my life would be like without it. But it, it is an important part of helping me work with my patients and also how to, how to interact with other people. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Joel Salinas, MD. It's an intriguing book, Mirror Touch, Notes from a Doctor Who Can Feel Your Pain. I think I might move to Massachusetts just so I can be your patient. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. And it's East on into WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. The WIP time, 7.08. We'll be back in just a bit. 